0: Hey everybody, welcome to week three of Reading Romans Backwards. This week we'll talk about Christform living. What's that mean? Stick around and find out. Let's pray. Holy God, we are grateful for the time that you've given us. We're grateful for the gifts you've given us. Be with us during this hour as we study your word and learn more about those who came before us. We pray that you would guide us and strengthen us in all that we do in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Okay, uh, a reminder for everybody, before we get going here, stop us if you have questions, or if something's not clear, or if you need me to repeat something, just stop. If we don't finish the PowerPoint, we don't finish the PowerPoint, you know, I'm not, not paid by the slide. So, um... I really I want to make sure because, you know, Romans do, in high school math, I remember my teacher said, uh, you know, Phil, in math, if you get behind, it's hard to catch up. And I thought this is why I hate math. Um, and but sadly, Romans is similar. Um, if you get behind, it's going to be harder to figure out where we're going. So the more we get into this, uh, the more important it is that you make sure you kind of feel like you're on top of things. If you have a question, odds are everybody else has the same question, um, except for Greg Roberts who also has the same book I'm using. So anyway, um, we're gonna go ahead and get started. Again, just stop us. Anybody can stop us anytime um, and we'll go, go over things. So um, again, we're working from the back front to the front. So, um, so that means it's it's going to jump around just a little bit. So we're going to do selections from chapters 12 to 15 um, this week. Does anybody, do you guys, I have a couple Bibles in here. Does anybody want one to look at? Okay. You good? Okay. Okay. So um, let's go ahead and get started here. We're going to review before we start. So last week, if you remember, we talked about the strong and the weak um, and, uh, McKnight's going to come back to these consistently, these themes of the strong and the weak. So here's the strong as a reminder. They were predominantly Gentiles. They believed Jesus was the Messiah. They do not, repeat, not observe Torah law. They have condescending attitudes toward Jews and Jewish believers. And this is the group that Paul identifies most closely with. Now, remember, Primarily, what we're talking about for our purposes, when we talk about not observing Torah law, is three things. We're talking about men not being circumcised. We're talking about not observing dietary laws, and we're talking about observing, uh, not observing the Sabbath. Those are the, uh, those are the main kind of manifestations of how the Torah would have impacted people's daily lives is is in those three ways so uh that's the strong didn't do any of those things they didn't worry about circumcision they didn't observe dietary laws and they didn't observe the sabbath any questions on that did you have thoughts from last week anybody
1: would they have worn a mask during a pandemic
0: i hope so but probably not libertarians they were okay let's look at the week so remember, these are Jewish believers. The weak are Jewish believers who are in the stream of God's election. What's that mean? They felt like as ancestors of Abraham, they were just automatically in that stream of God's work throughout history, uh, that that was kind of their primary uh, kind of place in, in Christianity, was in the new Christianity, which they really viewed as just Judaism, Uh, Jewish Christians really just thought that this was still Judaism. They didn't see a distinction between Judaism and Christianity in the same way that Gentiles did. They know the Torah and they practice it. Remember, when we're talking about the Torah, we're talking about the first five books of the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We're talking about there's 600 plus laws written down in those five books. So we're talking about those. Most of those were not relevant for urban dwelling uh, Roman Gentiles in the the Roman world. Um, But anyway, that's what we're talking about with the Torah. So they practice the Torah, and they may also attend synagogue, and they are judgmental of Gentiles, especially Gentile Christians. Don't like them. Don't have time for them. Not in favor of them. And remember too that these Jewish Christians had been removed from Rome by the Emperor Claudius, and that means, meant that Gentile Christians had really taken control of uh, of the church. So while they were gone, so when they came back under the Emperor Nero, they found a church that had been kind of transformed. So you can see where the conflict would have <laughs> been between these two groups. It's also a good reminder for us that that churches for better and worse, you guys, churches naturally um, split into factions. They just kind of do it naturally. Um, And the early church was very much split between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. So keep this in mind with the strong and the weak. When we're talking strong, we're talking Gentile. When we're talking weak, we're talking Jewish Christian. So just kind of remember those things and the rest should get you through. Do you have questions about either of those? Nothing. Okay. We'll keep our review going. Food review. Remember, this is a big part of this conversation. This also is a huge part of 1 Corinthians. Paul says he thinks all foods are clean. This goes right to the heart of the matter for the week, as evidenced by the bracketed conversation about food in Romans 14. So uh, this was a primary source of conflict between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Don't think about church in the first century as church in the 21st century. They were remarkably different experiences. First century church was built around meals, eating together. Um, And so what people ate would have been a huge, huge problem. In 21st century church, it doesn't really matter if you're a vegan or a vegetarian or all you eat is bacon. It's not going to inhibit your ability to participate in the life of the church. In the first century, it would have been a huge problem of eating. Does that make sense? You mean to say more about that, anybody? So this is what Phoebe's talking to them about. Picture Phoebe standing there. Picture her reciting these things from memory. Picture her trying to bridge these gaps that exist between Jewish and Gentile Christians, between the weak and the strong. So now we're going to get to this week's stuff, unless you have a question. Anybody have a question? Clear as mud? Why, did, um,
2: why were these people mostly removed? Claudius?
0: hmm
2: Because of what mostly?
0: Well, so the question is, uh, why were the Jews removed from Rome? I don't know the triggering event. There were two main problems that the, well, there was really one primary problem that the Romans had with the Jews, and it was monotheism. Everybody else at the time was polytheistic. They had no problem worshiping multiple gods. So you think back to, you know, Zeus and Apollo and all those ancient gods of those pantheons, there were cults that would come into Rome from the east and people would participate in all of those. By the time Claudius got around uh, to being in charge, uh, you had a well-established imperial cult in Rome. So, in addition to worshiping the traditional gods, you also worshiped the emperor. So, like, imagine how that would go in the United States if you know you have a primarily monotheistic culture here religiously. So, if if somebody said, okay, now you have to go and you have to worship the president every Sunday uh, or once a month or whatever, like we would be like, well, that seems bad because we're all basically monotheists here and the 10 commandments tell us that any other God is idolatry. And that was the problem with the Jews. They wouldn't do it. They wouldn't worship the emperor, which was viewed as treason. And so they were viewed as troublemakers, rabble-rousers, all that sort of thing. And they were, they were kicked out of lots of places. This is why the temple was sacked in Jerusalem was because of that. So it was a real problem. And, and monotheism was the primary problem. Early Romans couldn't really tell the difference once Christianity evolved. They couldn't really tell the difference between Christians and Jews. There, there were too many nuances there. They didn't care and didn't perceive them. Um, so that was the primary problem monotheism in a polytheistic culture other questions that's a good question so there was a triggering event that i don't know what it was that claudius expelled them okay let's move along this week we're going to talk about christoformity big word christoformity that's a good one so uh what does christoformity mean Uh, This is one of the pervasive themes of Romans, Christoformity, and this is what it means. Lived theology, lived theology is Christoformity, the process of being conformed to Christ. So Christoformity is really the ways in which what we believe define and dictate our practices, behaviors, and habits. So it's that marriage of what you believe and what you do. So it, Paul's argument here that we're going to get into, it doesn't really matter how right your belief is if it doesn't influence your practice. There should be a manifestation in your life of the beliefs that you hold, but that manifestation should not be legalism. It shouldn't be just this rigid adherence to law. So that's what we're going to get into Here's a couple more quotes from the book. Christ is the paradigm, the fundamental revelation of who God is. And the God in Christ revelation is one, uh, typo Lynn right there, is one who, because he was God, chose not to stay put, but entered missionally into being a human, even to the degrading status of one crucified. So you can see in the life of Jesus, the idea of marrying existence and belief. The character of God is revealed through the existence of Jesus. And that existence uh, even included crucifixion. So the act of God being crucified is in itself a theological statement by God. So the act ties in to the belief, right? Right. And so that missional incarnation created redemption. This was a lot of words. So far, I'm going to keep going and we can stop. So we're just going to read a couple passages here. This is Romans 14, 7 to 9. We do not live to ourselves and we do not die to ourselves. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, so that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. You've heard this read before regularly at funerals, right? Whether we live or whether we die, we live or die to the Lord. We are the Lord's. So it's a, it's, that's primarily the place that we hear it. So let's talk about it for a second. This is one of the Christoform passages that McKnight is pointing out to us. So lived theology is grounded in the pattern of Christ. That pattern is life and death. So Romans 14, 7 to 9 teaches that Christ's death led to his resurrection, which led to his ascension and rule. So those who live or die, live to the Lord and die to the Lord. In such a manner, Christ is Lord of both the living and the dead. So, what Paul's saying here, this is where it gets kind of meta- metaphysical uh, and complicated. What Paul's saying here is that in Christ's life and death, there is a unity that comes forth between Christ and those who believe in him. And when you believe in him, you join into Christ's life and Christ's death. So you take on that pattern of life and death, of resurrection. So it's, it's a complicated type of idea, but it's this idea of union and oneness with Christ as something that manifests itself through belief, but also is something which is a constant reminder to us. Now, this is going to be relevant for the Romans because if the church is the body of Christ, how can it be divided how can it exist as something which is divided that is not crystal okay so this is complicated i stopped the share there now you can all uh, see each other again uh who's got questions we're gonna go a little further into this so you you, you know you may get some clarification as we as we plug along but who's got questions Do you understand the idea of being Christoform of that uniformity between belief and and behavior? I'm going to take your silence as affirmation. All right, so we're going to keep going then. Okay, so this is Romans 15, 3, 5, and 7. So this is a broken up passage. For Christ did not please himself, this is 15.3, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. This is Romans 15.5. May the God of steadfastness and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus. This is Romans 15.7. Welcome one another, therefore, just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So now you're getting some specific actions and behaviors that are expected of people who are trying to conform their belief and behavior uh, with one another to Christ. And you can see the the unity language here. So we'll go ahead and and take a look at that. So we'll think back to those passages. First thing, the strong are not to please themselves. But to use their power, but they are to use their power and privilege for others. Why? Because Christ did not please himself. When Christ was here, he had all the power that anybody could ever want, and he didn't use that power in order to make his own life great. He used that power sacrificially in order to transform the lives of those to whom he was sent to minister. In the Roman church, the power, such as it was, was on the side of the strong. Remember, there's more of them now, and the Jewish Christians had left, so they had basically taken control of the church. How should they use that power? Should they use that power to make the church exactly as they want it to be? Should they use that power to ease out or push out the Jewish Christians and their voices? No. Why not? Because Christ did not use his power to please himself. This ties back to Romans 15.3. We'll read it again. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. So he took on the hatred of the world, in fact, willingly. So the second point, the strong are to have a life shaped by pleasing others. The more power you have, Paul is arguing, the more power you have, the more you should focus and work on pleasing others, serving others. This idea of servitude, of power and weakness, is abundantly clear throughout the Gospels. Think about, for example, the end of John, uh, the night that of the Last Supper, the night when Jesus betr- is betrayed in the book of John. What does he do? He washes the disciples' feet. He wraps a towel around his waist, he puts his tunic to the side, and then he kneels before each of the disciples, and he washes their feet, the act of a slave. So, this is not just something that we see in Romans. This is a consistent theme that we find throughout the Gospels, that we use power to serve. Power exists for that purpose. The next point, if they do, they will find harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus. So if we go back and we look at 15.5, may the God of steadfastness and and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus. So imagine this, imagine you have a church where everybody in that church is committed to the service of others and to the sacrifice of their own good. Imagine that. That is what Paul is trying to get the Romans to create. If they live a life shaped by pleasing others, they will find harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus. So it's in that servitude, it's setting aside the self and pleasing and serving others that brings forth harmony in the church. And that's the same harmony that we seek to enjoy with Christ. This is another good example of the importance of the role of community in the Christian faith. We live in community and we're called to be in community by Jesus. We practice our faith. If we practice our faith by serving others, by pleasing others, by setting aside the self, that necessitates other people. Right? You can't say, I am going to have a life of servitude to myself, <laughs> right? That's not going to work. Like, well, it might work. Actually, it might be great. I'm going to totally indulge whatever I want to do selfless selflessly and sacrificially, right? That might work, but that's not what Christ is calling us to. And that's not what Paul is calling the Romans to what he's calling them to is a life of selflessness and service of others, And that then in and of itself draws us closer to Jesus. If you want to get closer to Jesus, you serve one another from positions of power to weakness. So then finally, uh, welcome one another, uh, Paul writes. Why or how? Just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Here we see lived theology as crystal formity. Christ welcomes us. He welcomes us through his existence. He welcomes us certainly through his resurrection. So, then the idea of welcome, the idea of hospitality to everyone, this idea of welcoming ties us to that glory, is what Paul is saying. If you want a piece of that glory of God, if you want to tie into what Jesus did in your life and in the world, you do that by welcoming one another. Set aside your differences as the strong and the weak. Stop worrying about Torah law. Stop worrying about what food you're eating. And start worrying about how you can serve one another, how you can be selfless, how you can live in harmony together, and how you can welcome one another. This is the way in which we're called to live together. So that's his argument here in three five and seven so we'll pause there for a second before we get on to um where's
2: my thing nope that's not what i want
0: there we go okay questions comments everyone has been a part of numerous churches that have had this degree of sacrificial love for one another i know that was irony
2: So I'm trying to see in here if there's a
1: flip side to it where you have to be willing to receive service from others. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. if
0: everybody's out trying to do the service, mm-hmm. you know, right, where does that leave the other person? Right. So I don't know. Um, we haven't gotten too far into that. I don't recall reading about that uh, where it leaves the other person. I think the assumption, if I'm having to guess, Ken, I think the assumption would be that if you are in a position of powerlessness then receiving hospitality and welcome is pretty easy because we're not all coming to uh coming in the roman context we're not all coming from the same uh level we're not all in the, it's not a level playing field that hence the idea of the strong and the weak now if you want to apply this to like first presbyterian church then it's going to be a little different because we don't have that same type of feeling but Uh, If we have kind of a a greater spirit of working for the, the well-being of the other, how does that manifest itself? But here's where it breaks down, and here's why it's so hard. Everybody has to generally be on board with this, because if not, you just have people taking advantage of the generosity, hospitality, and selflessness of the others. So it's very difficult to create this type of culture, and yet that's exactly the culture to which Paul is calling us. So it's harder. It's a lot harder to do this. I would just think
1: if you're out there, you know, if you're the main foot washer of the church and you're doing your thing and you're starting to experience burnout, other people are seeing it and they want to help you. But you say, oh, no, 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 no. My thing is I'm the foot washer.
2: Right. There's got to
0: be something. Right. You have to be willing to do that. And and when you get back to the foot washing thing, remember, Peter tries to stop Jesus from washing his feet right says no you can't do that uh and then uh jesus says well listen man if you want to be a part of what i'm doing you've got to let me wash your feet and then peter's like okay well then wash all of me like goes way too far um (laughs) so yeah i mean you have to be able to receive and and that is without getting into like i'm looking at greg here the psychology of everything some people (laughs) serve themselves uh by constantly putting themselves in positions of weakness. For them, I think that is, uh it can be a selfish act. Is that a fair thing to say, Greg?
2: Yeah, but my my thought is interesting You said that because my thought is that I read this and I have empathy. For mm-hmm. I mean, I, I yeah. feel I don't I know feel. It exactly comes from mm-hmm. is that therapeutic mm-hmm. it, but, but I mean, they are it's not that they're bad. No. I mean, mm-hmm. it, but they are not able to conform mm-hmm. in the story. And, and you know, I, I, I even like, you know, I think we know where this ends, but the, in, in, as a story, where is this?
0: Yeah.
2: You know, I mean, I have this very interesting, you know, sort of experience with it the sense
0: of the activity and the process and, and then mm-hmm. yeah so for you guys online greg's saying that he has a lot of empathy for the jewish christians uh and gets why it's hard for them and kind of is like where are we going like where is this going to end how is this going to work itself out which is a great question and the the sad thing is that we don't really know right like it's not like we then have the session minutes <laughs> from the Roman house churches from the first century, right We don't really know how it all worked itself out and how it all ended. And certainly I think you have a lot of a lot of uh it's tough for for both sides, but certainly the Jewish Christians who had been displaced had come back now find things changed uh, are really struggling to I mean it's a massive paradigm shift in their thinking. It's a huge shift to go from, being Jewish to becoming a Jewish Christian to becoming essentially a Christian that tolerates Gentile behavior when you had been conditioned for decades that that behavior was idolatry. <coughs> so it's a very difficult paradigm shift.
2: And there's, a, there's, I don't want to steal your thunder here, but nope. there's an interesting section. In, I mean, I don't know that you have skipped over it, but I mean, there's a lot May of. have. <laughs> well, about, about the zealotry.
0: Yes, yes. We didn't do the zealotry chapter, but yes.
2: It's very short. Mm-hmm. But I mean, and the, the message in that is that zeal, too much zeal creates violence. Yeah, right. And I think that is so, uh-huh. I mean, I keep having this comparative you know, analysis of the current culture. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. how, and, I, and I have a very low tolerance for overzealous mm-hmm. anything. You know. mm-hmm. But, and I think that is, I mean, that makes this whole thing very rich.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Greg was pointing out.
1: I'm I'm having a hard time. I'm having a hard time hearing Greg.
0: Yeah, I'm going to try to repeat what he said. So Greg was talking about there's a chapter on zealotry, which I didn't include. It was very short and I was worried about our time, but uh, where Paul's warning about being overzealous. And Greg was uh, saying that, you know, the way in which he was, he was seeing the ways in which Paul talked about that. And then the way that being overzealous manifests itself in our current culture. And Greg was saying that he struggles kind of with overzealousness of any kind. Is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, the, the, where you go too far down and, and with the zeal in particular, I'm glad you brought this, this up, the zeal in particular is going to be manifest in the Gentile Christians. They have had an earth shattering life-changing experience. They have completely changed the way that they looked at themselves, the way they looked at other people, the way they looked at the world around them. For Jewish Christians, it was a much more subtle change, relatively speaking. Like for Jewish Christians, they're like, uh, yeah, there's one God. We're with you. Right. And yeah, there's a Messiah. We've been hearing about the Messiah for centuries, of course, for, for Gentile Christians, they're like, "Wait, one God? There's only one God, and what is this Messiah thing?" And so then, once they get involved in it, and once they immerse themselves in it, you can see how it would lead to zealotry uh, from those folks. So, and Paul certainly has some some zealous uh, streaks to him, as you know. None of us would really like to hang out with Paul; like he would not be fun. <laughs> If you want to have somebody to come over and like watch the game, don't invite Paul. Um, Other questions? So what Paul's trying to get really, as you heard from those passages, that stuff's directed at the strong. And what he's trying to get them to do is like, great. You believe this stuff? Great. Here's how you live it in community, right? Like he's trying to get them to take that next step where it's great that you believe these things. It's, I'm excited that you believe in Jesus, but Jesus was welcoming. <laughs> like, it's almost like, if you hear it like this, it's almost like talking to a kid, right? You know? Uh, so anyway, let's, let's take a look at this next passage. And then, uh, yeah, we're getting kind of kind of getting close here. So here's Romans 2, 1 to 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So, that passage there, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, that should be familiar to a lot of you, I would expect, that passage. Um, and certainly I think gets to the heart of the Christian project, right? Like uh, the tendency I think is to compartmentalize our faith. Like my faith is what I exercise and what I live out like on Sundays at church or when I'm uh, at a fellowship event, but then we don't always think about our faith in all areas of our lives. This is the, this is what Paul's getting after here. So let's look. Christiformity is embodied God orientation. So you're embodying the orientation of your life towards God and embodied God orientation involves everything that the ancient world included in what we call religion. Two elements we will call attention to briefly are sacrifice and prayer for our purposes this morning. We're going to focus on sacrifice. So this idea of God orientation embodied God orientation is where We're working to point every element of our life towards God. Like there, there's not, you want to bring yourself into alignment if you think about it that way. It, you don't want to be going this way, this way, this way. Uh, that's, that's not good. You want, to be, you want to be coming into alignment. So let's talk about sacrifice for a minute. The sacrifice is offered because of the transforming power of God's mercy and grace. The sacrifice Paul has in mind is radically new. Christian sacrifice is an embodied way of life offered to the invisible but ever-present God. What Christians do is our sacrifice. Sacrifice is spiritual worship. Embodied gospel-shaped life is worship. Now, here's a key point for us. Unlike moderns, that's us, who use the term worship for the singing portions of Sunday service, That's people who are evangelical, not Presbyterians. Ancients embodied daily life as their worship. So uh, we think of worship as something that we do in the sanctuary on Sunday mornings or at Garrison Commons these days. Uh, But for the ancients, worship was a way of life. You're worshiping with all that you do. So worship is not confined. This is what I mean by the compartmentalization piece. Worship is not confined to a certain time period on a Sunday morning or a certain part of a worship service, uh, worship is something that we embody. We are worshipful always. So uh, that, uh, Paul is saying, involves sacrifice. Again, this theme is pervasive, this idea of selflessness and sacrifice. And it's not just pervasive in Romans. It is pervasive in scripture. And it is completely the opposite by and large, of where we have rooted modern American Christianity. Our modern Christianity here in our country almost exclusively orients us back to the self. That's the trouble with therapeutic uh, Christianity, where Christianity is like a self-help mantra or something for self-improvement. That would would make Paul uh, real angry if he he came across that. So let's look at one more slide and then we'll talk for a second. Holy Roman Christians are no longer Roman in their embodied way of life because they are transformed and renewed in their minds. Better yet, the many bodies that become a singular sacrifice also become one mind. So this is a radical form of community. To sum up, this sacrifice is a dual action of God orientation and away from the world orientation. To turn to God... To embody a life that is sacrificial worship is to turn from the way of Rome, to turn to Christoformity. You can't do both, uh, Paul is arguing. You can't have both. uh, You can't be both Roman and and Christian. It doesn't work that way. You're Christian. So um, this idea of of sacrificial uh, living, this idea of conforming our lives and our beliefs uh, communally to the way of Christ necessitates a withdrawal from the values of the Roman culture around the early church. And if Paul were here today, he would say it would necessitate a withdrawal from the American values around us today. So, but we can go I mean, ahead. Anne.
1: But we cannot do that by ourselves. No. We can only do it through Christ working through us. And I love this song, as we go on our way, may Christ go with us. He walked before us to show us the way. Mm-hmm. He walked behind us to encourage us, beside us to befriend us, above us to watch over and within us to give us peace.
0: And you're the new teacher of the class. I'm I, happy to... I said
1: too much, I'm sorry.
0: Oh, that was <laughs> No, that was perfect. That was a perfect summary. We can't do it without Christ. Absolutely not. We can't. Because first of all, without Christ, what are we even trying to do? We don't know. We don't know what we're trying to do. And second of all, it is only through his strength and his sacrifice that we're able to have strength and sacrifice in our own lives. And then for that to be embodied communally as a body of Christ, as a group of believers, Uh, Christ orients us towards one another for that support and strength. That we'll find necessary to do exactly what you said, and I mean that was perfect. That was that was a perfect, a perfect summary of what McKnight's trying to talk about with this idea of Christoformity. That was that was perfect. That was perfect. What other questions? questions. Comments. That's it, huh? You've said all you have to say. Yeah, Greg's got a question.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so the question is, were the Jews in Rome poor, probably? Yeah, so you know mean
2: more so than the Gentiles.
0: It would vary. I think Christianity clearly appealed to poor people. Um, so how do we know that? We know that by the presence of slaves in Christian churches. We know that churches, early churches, had slaves in them. We know that in those churches, those slaves were treated uh, differently than they were in the community around them. So we know that it certainly appealed to the marginalized. We also see this in the very early church, as we've looked at in this letter, with the strong role that women have. Keep in mind in society, in Roman society, women were completely uh, secondary to men. It was a heavily patriarchal society. Then the Jewish Christians uh, were likely also poor. They wouldn't have had the same uh, access to building wealth that their Gentile neighbors would have or their pagan neighbors would have because of their religious beliefs. Not working on Saturdays would have had consequences. Not worshiping at the temples and networking through that would have had consequences. Not being able to participate in the system of patronage, which often involved going to meals at wealthy donor, wealthy patrons' homes, uh, would have had consequences. So they, they paid an economic price, certainly, for their faith. And they came from a province, if they, if they migrated uh, within the empire, if they came from Judea, they came from a province that was not wealthy. It was, it was a poor rural province. So they wouldn't have had a lot of accumulated assets uh, to bring with them like people from other communities might have. So no, you're, you're talking about a few isolated, probably, probably Greg, you're talking about a few isolated wealthy Christians uh, in the midst of a group that was probably pretty poor and pretty marginalized.
2: Yep. Where did Phoebe get her money?
0: We don't know. I don't know where Phoebe got her money, you know? Yeah. She probably stole it. I bet she killed her husband and took it. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, it's been a unique, certainly, situation. There is a chance she inherited it um, or she was just an extraordinary merchant. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it was one of the two, but it would have been very difficult for her to get that money. Other questions or comments this morning? Yeah, I have a question or a request. Yeah. Uh, could you read that summary again? It didn't but the sound didn't come through my deal very well. Yeah. When you said that was a perfect summary, would you ask her to read that again? Oh, of uh, Ann Smith? Yes. yes. Ann, recite your recite your hymn again.
1: Oh darn. <laughs> <laughs> he walks with me and talks with me along last like, narrow way. Is that who I was saying? You were
0: you were talking about Christ beside me, Christ before me.
1: Oh, as I go on my way, may Christ go with me. Yes. May he go before me to show me the way, may he go behind me to encourage me. No, I'm sorry, to yeah, encourage me. May he walk beside me to befriend me. May he walk above me to protect me. And may he walk within me to give me peace. That's as close as I can come to it.
0: That was good. Larry, did you get look it? At,
1: look it up. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: google times any other things this morning okay let's look at uh i'll give you a little preview of next week uh, of what we're going to get to uh next week christoformity is embodied body of christ orientation and it is public orientation a god orientation can easily get lost in the upper reaches of individualism solitude and mystic devotion but for paul God orientation is an embodied life with others. The church, the body of Christ, is that embodied life with others. The themes of Romans 12 to 16 take us to the heart of lived theology. So that's where we're heading. We're going to talk about the body of Christ orientation and public orientation next week. Um, But this idea of Christoformity will stick with us. This idea of turning our beliefs into concrete actions, lived behaviors, and embodying those beliefs with our very selves is not going to go away. So anything else you guys want to say this week? Okay, great. We will call it a day. I'm going to stop the recording. Thanks for listening to Romans Sunday School this week. We will return next week with week four of our journey through reading Romans backwards by Scott McKnight. If you have questions or comments, please feel free to contact me, Philip Blackburn, at philip at oneprez.org. I'll see you next Sunday.